Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Protections for immigrant workers, what OSHA is doing. And today on the show, we pay homage to a woman who stood up for workers her entire life. And we check in with the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. Welcome to the Wednesday, March 8th edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least six platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. I'm going to throw out a name, a name that you should know and certainly will know after you hear this broadcast and podcast today, Mother Jones, Mother Jones, her role in history, labor history. And if there's one person that knows everything about this powerful woman and her impact on labor today, it's Rosemary Foyer. Rosemary is a professor at Northern Illinois University. She's the author of a number of books. In fact, one of her projects was titled Mother Jones, America's Most Dangerous Woman. That came out in 2007. She's also been involved in the Mother Jones Heritage Project. Now, what we're talking about today is a statue, and apparently this statue is going to move forward in downtown Chicago. A committee got together. By the way, her real name is Mary Harris, but everybody calls her Mother Jones. And there will be a memorial statue to her in the city's historic Water Tower District on North Michigan Avenue. Now, the Water Tower there is the most iconic old Chicago site in the city and one of the most visited, yet the park around it is very small and intimate. The sculpture, when they're arranging the funds, I'll get to that in a minute, the sculpture will signal Chicago is a union town, that immigrants and working class people built the city, and that we are part of a tradition of struggle. A little background on Mary Harris, Mother Jones. She was born in 1837, lived a long life, died in 1930, She came to Chicago to help lead the labor struggle just before the Great Chicago Fire, which was in 1871. It destroyed most of the south side, much of the west side, downtown, and neighborhoods north of the Chicago River, right up to the water tower. Mother Jones stayed in the Windy City, basing herself in Chicago and organizing its workers when she wasn't campaigning for exploited coal miners downstate and their union, the United Mine Workers. Dying in 1930, she was buried at Mount Olive, which is in coal country. The water tower was being built when Mother Jones returned to Chicago after she lost her husband and children to yellow fever. After that fire, Mother Jones was said to have found a new purpose by becoming part of Chicago's multi-ethnic immigrant-based labor movement. Now, this committee that's organizing this statue, they're still raising funds, and uh, Rosemary's going to talk about that. The sculpture will represent labor history, women's history, and the history of immigrants, and the long struggle of people 
before profit. Fittingly, Cecil Roberts, who heads the uh, United Mine Workers, was one of the three national union leaders on the organizing and the fundraising committee. The other two are Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, which is part of the CWA, and, of course, Terry O'Sullivan, Labor's International, and uh, Labor's International, of course, the presenting sponsor of America's Workforce. I understand, too, uh, a retired AFSCME labor leader will also be involved in some of the uh, fundraising, which is going on right now. And uh, there's a website we'll drive you to, motherjonesmuseum.org, Mother Jones Museum. Now, that museum is in Mount Olive, where she's buried, but this is going to be a statue that, well, you think about all the traffic in downtown Chicago. Everybody's going to see this. It's, it's quite, uh, quite fascinating. So Rosemary Foyer will be our first guest on the show. Then we're going to go to a Melissa Moriarty. Melissa's with an organization that we have referenced on the show many, many times called National Kosh, National Council on Occupational Safety and Health. Nationalkosh.org is a website. This organization gets a lot of attention every year when they come out with a dirty dozen. These are the bad employers around the country. There's definitely more than a dozen, but these are the worst of the worst, and she'll reference that. In fact, the deadline has come and gone to nominate an unsafe employer. So we'll, we'll get into that. We'll also talk about what this organization is doing for journalists. They did this uh, last week where they gathered a bunch of journalists. They did this online to instruct them on how to cover construction accidents. Often the headlines would read, well, it was a freak accident, which means it could not have been prevented. However, Melissa says many of these tragedies could have been prevented. And the big issue here is understanding the data that OSHA provides and sifting through that data. It can get very, very cumbersome and convoluted. And that's exactly what National Kosh does. They kind of sift through that and help you understand it. Later this month, they're uh, conducting a teach-in. This is going to be on March 23rd. And if you go to that website, nationalkosh.org, you can get some information on that. And that's where we will learn about campaigns that use the data and made some positive changes as a result. They did this in Massachusetts and New York. And as a result, they got some very positive attention, which created a win for workers. Certainly good stuff there. Very good stuff. So Melissa Moriarty, communication specialist with the organization National Kosh. I'm going to take a few minutes here to talk about uh, immigrant workers who are on the front lines in a lot of businesses and not getting the protections they deserve until now. Until now. Across the country, you need to know, that some 8 million undocumented or unauthorized immigrants are working in the labor force. And experts say they are among the most vulnerable to exploitation, to workplace violence, and dangerous working conditions. Shannon Lederer, Director of Immigration Policy for the AFL-CIO, said one of the things that perpetuates unsafe conditions in the workplace is that workers are intimidated into staying quiet. And one of the most potent threats that employers use is the threat of immigration enforcement. Well, the Biden administration has come forward with some changes. Recently, the Department of Labor announced that OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, will be able to issue certifications for special visas 
that allow victims of certain crimes, including trafficking, extortion, forced labor, and others, to come forward and help law enforcement investigate and prosecute those crimes without the fear of retaliation based on their immigration status. This is quite monumental, and it also caught the attention of the leaders of the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. They announced that the new policy will offer significant protections. Comment here from Jessica Martinez, co-executive director of National Kosh. This is a step forward for immigrant workers in the country, including the millions who are undocumented. These workers are essential to our economy and communities, but are all too often victimized by unscrupulous employers. These same employers frequently threaten to use immigration status as a way to silence workers and prevent them from speaking up about abusive and illegal practices in their workplaces. She goes on to say when workers have a voice, they can join together to stop illegal conduct and exploitation by their employers. So I often say on the show, we're moving the needle in the right direction. And slowly but surely, we are doing that in America. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk all about a labor leader that you're going to learn a whole lot more about, Mother Jones with Rosemary Foyer, back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. You're listening to America's Workforce, and this next segment brought to you by the North Coast Labor Federation. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the U.S., US Canada, Canada, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steel workers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWatterson.com. to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. And if you like a show, please share that show. We count all the downloads. Our sponsors like to know how many downloads for America's Workforce. And I am happy to say we are growing every day. And you can check us out at awfpodcast.com, awfpodcast.com. Lots of shows posted there. All right, let's go to uh, Northern Illinois University right now, which is just west of Chicago. And joining us on our live line is Rosemary Foyer. She's been on the show a number of times, and the subject matter is all about Mother Jones. There's a Mother Jones Museum that they've been working on, and she's been involved in. And now a statue, and they're raising funds for that statue, which is going to be 
in downtown Chicago because Mother Jones spent a whole lot of time in Chicago. The most dangerous woman, they called her, in the United States in her day. Rosemary, welcome back to America's Workforce. How are we doing today? Great. Thanks for having me. How many years for you now at uh, Northern Illinois University? I've been here 25 years teaching labor history, and uh, it's never been as uh, popular a subject for students um, at any other time than now. So it's, we need to it's reach amazing these young with, people. With all the organized, yeah, young people especially, between 18 and 34, it's exploding, and you're seeing all these pockets of organizing. They're excited about organizing. Well, for for good reason, the minimum wage hasn't moved since... 2009 and a lot of these uh, workers are in jobs not paying much more than that they're trying to get to at least a 15 hopefully 20 but uh, yeah it is an exciting time i did not realize that you manage the largest website on labor history in the country and uh, it's it's being revamped right now. Can you give us a little uh, detail? When did you yeah, start this? Yeah, it's laborhistorylinks.org, L-I-N-K-S is the last word. It's all one word, though, laborhistorylinks.org. And we're in the process of finally uh, getting it revisioned and revamped so that it's going to have a lot more content. Uh, everything from movies to books to children's books, there are, there's just a, a, it's packed with content. So um, I hope people will uh, check that out and keep updating to will um, to see the new new site too. And when do you expect it to be revamped? Sometime in the spring, this spring. Okay, all right. So look back by at least by May. Okay, well we'll bring you back and we can talk more about that. But let's get into Mother Jones. First of all, how did you get involved in uh, researching Mother Jones? What what prompted that? I have to say that, in part, she helped me become a, uh, a labor historian, uh, reaching out from the past. When I was a young person and interested in labor issues, I grew up uh, near, near uh, where she's buried in Mount Olive, Illinois, and then I became a labor activist in St. Louis before I became a labor historian. And trade unionists there visited Mother Jones' gravesite when they were trying to reach out for lessons from history. And uh, I went over with them, and we all sang Solidarity Forever around her gravesite and wondered what she would think of the labor movement and the state of the labor movement. And, um, you know, it, that in part caused me to become a labor historian who looked at you know, the experiences of workers in the past. And never really thought of studying her at the time. I thought of studying the people who she cared about, the people who built this country and who were um, reviled and repressed <laughs> in their activism in the past. So I wrote about uh, them, but I kept coming back. I had friends who really cared about keeping the memory of history alive, and they were part of the Mother Jones Foundation out of Springfield, Illinois. That's a city in the middle of the state, and it's the state capital, actually a huge, like 37% of people there are organized. And Illinois was, as Mother Jones said, one of the best organized labor states in the nation when she died. She chose to be buried here so that people would remember her. And as a a nod to them as a favor to them, I did a documentary, Mother Jones, America's Most Dangerous Woman. It was a short documentary, and I, I would say that for labor documentaries, it's been gangbusters. There's been at least, you know, a quarter of a million people that I know have watched and 
uh, were moved by that film. It's been on TV, you know, on local stations, and it's been circulated in a lot of labor uh, communities. Uh, it was the base for the revival of Mother Jones in uh, Ireland as well. And so that project, doing that video, really sort of catapulted me back to Mother Jones because people kept asking me um, to help doing various projects. I helped to um, get a Mother Jones museum started in Mount Olive. And then a group of us in Chicago, when um, there was a call to ask why aren't there more women on memorials, immediately said, well, if there's going to be women on a memorial, and, you know, to re to add to all of the men um, who are memorialized in statues in Chicago, Mother Jones should be there. And frankly, you know, there, were, there are only three women who even have half a body on a memorial in Chicago. So when we first asked Chicago about this, they weren't interested in Mother Jones. They had a list of 67 women who might be memorialized. And so what did we do as people who are part of the labor movement? We organized. And that's how <laughs> we got uh, just the recent an announcement that Mother Jones has been, they've agreed to place her in probably the most iconic site in old Chicago, which is the Water Tower. If anybody knows Chicago, the historic mm -hmm. water tower which survived the Chicago fire is probably a sacred place, and that's where she's going to be. So I'm really proud to announce that. We should point out, too, that uh, Mother Jones came to Chicago just before that fire, the great Chicago fire, which was in uh, 1871, and it destroyed a big chunk, especially the uh, south side. Much of the west side, downtown, the neighborhoods, right uh, north of the Chicago River, right up to the water tower. So, uh, yeah, exactly. that's that's historic in itself. Rosemary, if you don't mind, I want to go back a little bit and, and, and talk about the 67 women that were named for that statue. Uh, any names come to mind here? I mean, that's a lot of names there. Um, yes. Um <laughs> It was a lot of women. There were uh, very few working-class women who were selected. It had been uh, a, lo a list that was derived from the early um, 21st century by women's historians, and uh, certainly we thought Mother Jones deserved to be on there, but um, it was a lot of uh, what you might expect, scientists, um, social workers like Jane Addams, um, and uh, we had to fight to get women, uh, labor women named. There was uh, one other labor, a packing house uh, organizer, packing house workers organizer, who was on that. And that was mainly, we thought, because she was a, um, uh, African-American. And so they were looking for African-Americans to select, et cetera. So, um, you know, we don't say, we say that those women do deserve some kind of recognition, certainly, but... Um, we also recognize that, you know, women who are part of working class, uh, well, part of the working class might be overlooked. But yeah. Mother Jones was an icon from Chicago. Chicago made her um, into the activist that she was a national and international figure, but Chicago uh, certainly was an, is an appropriate place for her to be uh, remembered. 
I see the official name of the project is uh, Mother Jones. We shall rise. Now, did yes. you did you did you have a hand in that? Yes, we certainly did. I mean, I, I actually say that I was the one that asked for that naming, and Chicago agreed. Um, and the idea there is that Mother Jones stands for um, the ability of organizing to accomplish things that were never possible. And she always saw herself not, in some ways, as um, an ordinary person who committed herself to organizing everyone and that she knew that people who were labeled as ordinary could do extraordinary things if society enabled that. And, you know, not only that, but she was, um, that We Shall Rise has a hint of the water tower story because, as you said, she was, um, it was a place that survived. And she survived, but we're trying to change the narrative of the water tower because what she did in the aftermath of the of the fire um, was become an activist. She, when she was asked how she came to identify as a labor agitator and as an agitator for the poor and oppressed workers, she said, I first began to think of it after the Great Fire of Chicago when I saw that all the relief, the relief sent from across the globe to the poor people who were dispossessed, uh, and distressed did not reach the source, didn't go to the people. It actually, they were withheld the money from the poor. And that's what really led to her activism. So we want people who go to that water tower because it's an iconic place in Chicago to also remember the working class people who built Chicago and rebuilt it and how they had to fight for everything every step of the way. So we're really delighted that Chicago is on board with helping us with that narrative, and that's what the We Shall Rise will mean, that only by organizing can ordinary people really realize their collective um, collective struggle. Collective voice, too. Um, 1930s when she passed. Is this the... Only statue, no other place in America. And it, it might, this is kind of a two-part question here. It's almost 100 years. What, what took so long here? <laughs> right. Well, I think um, there's a, that's probably a, a long story, but uh, she did have a monument in that small coal mining town, but, you know, she was largely forgotten. There was, there's a lot of explanation for that. You know, she was um, not the greatest fen- friend of one of the iconic figures of the uh, mid-20th century labor movement, John L. Lewis. They were sworn enemies. So she was intentionally forgotten when he rose to power in the United Mine Workers. Um, and so that is one of those accidents of history that ordinary people didn't completely forget her, but there was no memorial um, to that representational memorial to her there was the uh, great i mean i think that the mother jones monument in that small town is one of the most important memorials in the country but doesn't have her you know it isn't a representation of her it's you know the most important ingredient of that monument is an obelisk and two miners so you know no other place took up that charge and I think that the labor movement has to do more to remember our history in the streets where it took place. Um, we know that that's what happened with Confederate statues. It was an organized movement. It only happened beginning, you know, 40 years after the war. Most of those monuments were put up 
1890 to 1950. And the labor movement put up very few monuments. And so I began to think about this and recognizing it was a major commitment, nevertheless, uh, it's not only me, obviously, it's a group of us who've really organized this campaign, and it is people who are in the labor movement in Chicago and uh, in the Labor Heritage Foundation. We said, you know, it's never going to happen unless we fight for it. Um, and initially, Chicago, you know, was going to give us another site, but then when all of the monuments controversy came about, we had to restart the entire application. We could have given up at that point, it seemed hopeless at some points, I'll be honest. And yet we persevered. We had the biggest organizing campaign of any monuments campaign in the Chicago Monuments Project, which is the um, the way that they ask us to organize. We have to prove that we're going to have an ongoing campaign in order to get a, um, a sculpture in Chicago. And that means that you have to have a long-term commitment. And I'm just our extraordinary committee just kept saying yes we will to everything <laughs> you know we're going to do this and it's really just the start of something bigger where we're going to make sure that other people are remembered and it's not you know everything that we're doing when we say we shall rise is connecting the past and the present you know it is trying to say what's the meaning for us today it's not just dead history we have to see ourselves as part of a tradition, a tradition of struggle, um, and a tradition in which people's stories matter. So that's the hope that we'll be able to build this out to um, you know, connect stories, her story, to other people. It's so important that people realize what labor brought. Labor gave us the middle class when you think about it, the eight-hour mm -hmm. day family vacations, pensions. It's so important. We have to go back into history and realize that. Rosemary, I'm so glad we're having this discussion because people need to know how we got here. Labor brought us the middle class. They brought us the eight-hour day, overtime, pensions, family leave, which goes back 30 years ago. Of course, we got to get paid family leave. That's another story. But it's so important that people today realize the sacrifice of the people, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers, and so on and so forth. Rosemary Foyer joining us on our live line today, talking about the Mother Jones statue, which is going to be erected just outside the water tower in downtown Chicago. Historic place. We'll continue the conversation right after this. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferrens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at Lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A. You're listening to America's Workforce, and this upcoming segment is brought to you by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. Check them out online at oft-aft.org. Hello from the Communication Workers of America, District 4. We are a labor union representing a vast array of workers in different industries, including the Association of Flight Attendants, Telecommunications, CWA Passenger Services, Public Health Care, and Education Workers. 
the IUE CWA Industrial Division, the National Association of Broadcast Employees, the CWA News Guild, not to mention our growing digital sector, and many others. If you're interested in organizing your work group or learning more about what it means to be CWA strong, visit our website at www.cwad4.org. That's cwad4.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least six platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, and Stitcher. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up, receive our shows on a regular basis, and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. You know, March is Women's History Month. We've been doing a number of shows commemorating women in labor history, and I'll tell you, it doesn't get much better than Mother Jones. Joining us on our live line today is Rosemary Foyer, who has been teaching U.S. history, labor history, U.S. capitalism, social protest movements, political repression for 25 years at Northern Illinois University, which is just west of Chicago. And the news is this. There will be a statue in downtown Chicago being erected to Mother Jones, who died almost 100 years ago, a powerful figure in the labor movement. And uh, Rosemary, I see you got some big unions that are helping out on this uh, when it comes to organizing and fundraising. I see Sarah Nelson of the Association of Flight Attendants, which is part of the CWA. Terry O'Sullivan, general president of our presenting sponsor, that would be Lyuna Labors International. Cecil Roberts, of course who uh, heads the mine workers. Mother Jones did so much for the, for the miners over the years. And there's a couple more. I see AFSCME is involved. How are we doing right now with, with fundraising? What's, what's the status Well, we are um, on our way, but we still have to cap it off. So, you know, any um, member or union that wishes, wishes to contribute, uh, we would deeply appreciate a donation. We have to uh, run, raise uh, at least fifty thousand more uh, to uh, by May, so that's um, our current goal. Um, but the final uh, project, the the actual final numbers, won't be known until the artists get done. So it might be a little bit more than that. And uh, you know, we have friends in Chicago. We have the support of the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Illinois Federation of Labor. Um, and as you said, national union. So we're delighted that we've been able to get those donations. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as I said, this is an ongoing project. So we're going to branch off from here. Motherjonesmuseum.org is the website that uh, Rosemary has up. And uh, there's a section on there that you can go to on this, and can people donate on that website as yes, well? Yes, it, it goes right to a donate platform, so we'd appreciate small, you know, and Mother Jones, when she, when, when her monument was built in, in uh, Mount Olive, Illinois, it was $2, and we appreciate all money. You, your name will go into the um, uh, statue, not on the statue, but into it in a time capsule. Uh, Chicago doesn't allow any funders to be, you know, prominently um, uh, engraved. Uh, so people can't expect that, but you will be remembered on our website and in the time capsule. Oh, I like that. All right, let's let's talk about Mother Jones. For those of you listening right now, we, we've got to educate you on her. And she was called the most dangerous woman 
<laughs> it's funny, too, because Randy Weingarten, I think you know Randy. Randy mm-hmm. is the uh, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, she was classified as the most dangerous person in the world. I mean, <laughs> never mind, you know, Vladimir Putin and uh, the premier of China. I mean, there's there's a lot of dictators out there that have been brutalizing their uh, populace. But Randy Weingart, head of the teacher, she's dangerous. So what made Mother Jones so dangerous? Can you explain? Well, that she was labeled that in um, in West Virginia because West Virginia was like czarist Russia, she said, and she defied bayonets. She literally went up, and this is just an extraordinary story. She'd go up to a bayonet and put her hand right on the blade and, you know, basically tell the soldier that he should be ashamed of himself for displaying this to minors, much less to an old woman. Uh, You know, there were injunctions named the Mother Jones Injunction, and an injunction is where you are prohibited from picketing or even walking to the mine. That's what they did. They were like, you're not going to have freedom of assembly or freedom of speech in West Virginia and lots of other places. And Mother Jones would just, she'd be served with an injunction. She'd she'd tear up the injunction right in front of the, (laughs) um, you know, the person who was uh, handing it to her. She goes, ah, it's just a bunch of rot. Throw it in the garbage. So, you know, she was defiant of the courts that were meant to um, deprive workers of their rights, and that made her a model. And it was true that when people saw what she was doing, they were spurred into disobeying disobedience, you know, to saying we're not going to honor that injunction because it's, a, as she said, a court-made injunction, and labor has to fight for its freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. She joked in West Virginia that she could, she'd she have to have a balloon to get from mine to mine because they wouldn't let her walk. So what did she do? She went into the middle of the river. She's like, you know, that injunction only says, I can't walk on this road, but I can walk in the stream. You know, um, she was 60 years old. I think about, you know, what she did, the descriptions of her walking up mountains in order to get to places because she couldn't walk the roads to get there just to get to a union meeting. You know, put put people into inspirational mode, and that's why she was called so dangerous because she could inspire people to rise up. It's a true um, story of perseverance, too, because Mother Jones. I mean, think about this: she lost her husband and all of her children to yellow mm-hmm. fever. And I mean, that right. alone you would know, stop somebody yeah. in their tracks. But uh, she just kept going, didn't she? Yeah, she was um she was somebody who took her pain and made it into a base of um inspiration and and um sacrifice for other people that she could have just wallowed in her own and, and just, you know, trying to survive was uh was one thing, but she had a lot of inspiration from the fact that she came from Ireland and had seen so many people die when there was still food during the potato famine, she lived in Cork and saw food being shipped out from Cork where people were starving. And that built a base of anger in her, just as when she didn't, um, when the food didn't get to people 
in Chicago, it just spurred anger. And anger sometimes makes you become an activist. Yep. You know, you can either just uh, reach into your despair. She said the same thing about her loss of her um, husband and children. The poor people had been forced to stay in the city while the rich people left, while the, this epidemic was happening. It was like in the pandemic uh, situation we've just experienced. She saw that as something that made her reach deep into her own soul um, to organize, to make sure that that didn't happen to other people. Um, so she said she her Irish spirit had the fight in it. You know, and that was, uh, you know, part of what motivated her throughout her life, that you can either wallow in your own self-pity or you can get out there and try to do something. And she did the second. Rosemary, I know being a historian, you probably combed a lot of old articles in that day. And and her Mm -hmm. lifespan was uh, 1837 and she passed away in 1930. How did... uh, how did the newspapers, I mean, there was no social media back then, let's be honest, but right. how, how did the media treat her at that time? Oh, my gosh. You know, in a day when women were supposed to be um, grandmotherly, she could work that grandmotherly aspect to save her from being murdered in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and the newspapers, sometimes they warmed to her and said, oh, she's a curiosity but there was a lot of slamming of her as well. She was a radical, and she was slammed for that. Um, she was told, you know, she didn't know what she was talking about in the newspapers. Um, you know, they portrayed her as manly. If you look at the early portrayals of her, they put a man's face on her in the sketches because they didn't use actual photos then. Uh, so there was a lot of nastiness by some newspapers, but then, as I said, others were just so amazed by her, especially, and this is interesting, I think, the women reporters actually started trailing her around and asking, what is her power? How is she able to command men uh, in, a, in a way that is so, so exciting and so extraordinary? And so the women reporters tended to cover her and um, that, I think, was a breakthrough in the mainstream press. Um, but uh, until her day, you know, and when she died, the newspapers were nice. <laughs> and they said, oh, it, look at what she accomplished. Uh, you know, things that she thought were so radical, such as the eight-hour day, are thought of as normal now. Yeah. Um, and so, but in, in the early period, uh, she was widely condemned in the newspapers um but again just some positive coverage at least they you know i've been able to find much more content than people who wrote biographies in the past have um had and so i i'm it's it's just all over the board in terms of what they say what they lie about her how they distort her so that shouldn't be so surprising working class people have never been covered um, positively in all newspapers ever in this country. And that's exactly why we do this show. We call it America, <laughs> guess, yeah. yep, America's Workforce. 30 years, 30 years for America's Workforce and three that's years great. on uh, podcasting. So, Rosemary Foyer, thank you so much for uh, for coming to the table today. And give us an, 
A little lesson in uh, labor history, especially about Mother Jones. It's it's quite fascinating. You mentioned that documentary. If I go to motherjonesmuseum.org, is there a link to that on that Yes, on that page? It, it, you can see it in its entirety. And you can okay. see Mother Jones speak in her slight Irish brogue in 1930. It's the only recorded speech we have of her in which she says, you know, I long to say see the day when labor has the destination of the nation in her own hands, and she will stand the united force and show the world workers what the uh, what they can do oh, show the world what the workers can do um so you know it's uh, quite a moment rosemary foyer thank you so much for joining us and let's uh, let's connect down the road especially when we get around that uh, deadline for a raise in the money which you say is going to be around april okay yes all right thank you so much all right we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to check in with melissa moriarty who handles communications for an organization called the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health. Back in a few minutes. This is America's Workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. From the Golden Gate Bridge to the St. Louis Gateway Arch, the Sears Tower, and just about every building, bridge, and structure in between, our cities and towns wouldn't be the same without iron workers. With over 3,000 contractors employing more than 130,000 highly trained iron workers and 20,000 apprentices, the Iron Workers Union stands ready and able to shape the future of our skylines. Learn more at ironworkers.org. Iron workers, the sky's the limit. The United Auto Workers are one of the largest and most diverse unions in North America, with members in virtually every sector of the economy. Learn more about this proud sponsor of our program at uaw.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to uh, New Hampshire right now. Joining us on our live line is Melissa Moriarty. She handles communications. She is a communication specialist with a great organization called National Kosh. And I've referenced this group many, many times on the show. And this is an organization that deals with worker safety. They do a lot of research and a lot of statistical analysis on what's going on in America with regard to worker safety. We want workers to come home from the job at the end of the day. And unfortunately, that is not the case. We're getting better at it, but we still have a long way to go. Melissa Moriarty, welcome to uh, America's Workforce. I know you've been on the show before, but you know what? We're getting new listeners each and every day. Why don't you, in your words, explain the organization that you work for? I, I know you work on it day in and day out. You're doing a great job. Why don't you explain uh, what it is, how it works, and how effective you have been over the years? Go ahead. Thanks for having me. So National Kosh is 
uh, an organization with a wide network all over the country. We've got 26 worker centers in different states. And, you know, I would describe us as, as the home of workers' health and safety movements here in the U.S. Um, we believe that every worker should have the right to a safe workplace free of exploitation and abuse. And we're really working to, to build on that with the help of workers themselves who know their workplace is the best and what needs to be resolved in them. Um, and, you know, we specialize in a lot of training and support for worker organizations, advocacy groups, and individuals. We should uh, give the uh, platforms that you're on. Of course, you got the, the uh, website, nationalkosh.org. You can follow them. National Kosh on Twitter, you're on Facebook and, and on Instagram. It's really, really easy to find the National Council for Occupational Safety and Health, better known as NCOSH. Now, I, I noticed a uh, news release that was posted a couple of weeks back dealing with protections for immigrant workers, and especially in the construction industry, you see a lot of that, and many of them have been taken advantage of them. Uh, you're dealing with some that may be undocumented. They're afraid to say anything. Why, why don't you explain what uh, what happened here? Because this is a giant step forward. Can you explain that? Yeah, it is. So basically, um, OSHA has now been giving the authority to grant certifications for visas to undocumented workers. And the reason that this is such a milestone is because now victims of crimes can help law enforcement detect, investigate, and, and even prosecute these crimes without fear um, of retaliation based on their immigration status. These crimes can include human trafficking, forced labor, obstruction of justice, uh, among many others. So basically, it's a new uh, memorandum that was signed, and the gist of it is basically, you know, if you're undocumented but a witness to a crime, in this case, you know, safety violations and things like that, OSHA can now give you a document so you can stay in the U.S. legally and help law enforcement prosecute that crime. It's just fair to say that we think OSHA is in a better position to enforce safety laws against employers than something like ICE or the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. So what, uh, what the scenario has been over the years, if they're undocumented right away, they're shipped out of the country and therefore the person that hired them is going scot-free because there's nobody to testify against them. Now they will stay here and we'll be able to hear their testimony. This is a big step forward, a big step forward. Um, let's talk about something that you did a couple of weeks back and this was a teaching journalist. It's so important because well, the media landscape, as you well know, has changed over the years and it's important that journalists, when they cover a story, say a worker is injured on the job or passes away because of something that the contractor did wrong, a lot of times, there. well, obviously, there's a lot of parts to that story, a lot of moving parts, and journalists have a lot of questions. Can you explain, and I guess this was the first time that you did this kind of thing, uh, which, is, which is really a step in the right direction. Can you give us some more details on on this uh, this whole process that you uh, that you just did, yeah, it was um, a teaching that we had for journalists, and basically, what we did is there's a lot of information that's public and accessible, but 
Uh, not everyone knows how to necessarily analyze the information. So, for example, OSHA 300 logs, where companies have to report wor workplace injuries. Um, when a company gets fined or, or dinged in a way, you can see that they're on the OSHA website, but you won't necessarily see the data that got them that violation. So what we went through uh, with these journalists is we showed them how to access it um, and also how to get the story behind the data so that they don't lose the humans components of these um, workplace injuries and fatalities. So one of the ways that they can get behind the data and find the narrative is, for example, um, going through the Freedom of Information Act. And we had experts lined up to show them just how to do that. Um, because one of the issues and something else that we were really trying to drive home during this training was so often news stories cover workplace injuries and deaths in one of two ways. One, it'll be headlines that uh, call these incidences freak accidents or even using the word accident in general has the connotation that it's something that couldn't have been prevented um, or anticipated or sometimes the way it's talked about in news is um, somehow kind of blaming the worker in some capacity okay. so what what we were really trying to also drive home in this training besides just teaching them how to access and analyze data is to think about what really went wrong in a way that doesn't blame the worker and in a way that gets to the root of the problem so that it won't repeat itself. Boy, that makes a lot of sense. I, I salute you for doing that. It's so important that we connect with the media so they can properly do the story and be accurate about it. And, and, and sifting through that data, well, that's time-consuming in itself, and it could drive you crazy. But uh, it's great that you did that. Now, you're taking this to another level because I see on March 23rd, you're doing a teaching, and this is going to involve, I believe, union organizers. Can you, uh, can you uh, give us some more details on that? Yeah, sure. So on March 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern, we're inviting um, union organizers, activists, health and safety enthusiasts, um, to a webinar that's free um, where we will show them effective campaigns that we and our network has been involved in in which we were able to use data, put pressure um, on employers and policymakers uh, to, to affect change for workers. And the other part of that is, well, we're going to be helping, you know, those who attend think about how to figure out whether to use existing data to, to get to their end goal or to collect it themselves. And we'll be using a few, a few case studies to do that. Um, so one, for example, just to throw out a potential case study that could come up in the webinar, I'm not sure if they'll be specifically using this case study, but um, one of our larger COSH groups, MassCOSH, the group in Massachusetts, um, a few years ago, they, they surveyed the cleaning staff that was responsible for cleaning all the tra train cars in the M MBTA, and um, because the workers there were raising a lot of warning bells about the pace of the work, the bodily fluids they have to clean up, the chemicals they're exposed to, their consequences, the lack of protective uh, equipment that they didn't have access to, and the report ended up getting a lot of media coverage. MassCosh did that in um, conjunction with the with the union at the time, 
that they were trying to, um, that they were working with, and, and National Kosh also supported this report. And the the findings, got, like I said, got a lot of media coverage. Um, and then the outcome was MVPA was forced to to help address the, the safety issues that they were putting these workers through. So we'll have case studies like that where there was like a lot of success um, in gathering the data and then affecting change to help inspire, you know, participants that they could potentially have similar outcomes. And that's what you want. You want to change the environment so workers are safer. That's uh, it's exactly what we all want. Okay, that date is March 23rd. That's a teach-in, and it's using data to power your health and safety campaigns, and it's geared toward uh, union organizers and worker leaders. And if uh, those of you that are listening that fit that category, go to nationalkosh.org and register nationalkosh.org. All right, Melissa, there's one uh, one more thing I want to get into. That's the Dirty Dozen. I recall talking to you about this uh, last year, and uh, I know you get a lot of nominations. And what this essentially is is a listing of companies that just don't do it right. And, and there's workers that in many cases die on the job. So uh, if you can give us a little refresher on this, and I, I know the deadline has come and gone for uh, nominations and all that, but uh, – can you give us a little history on the Dirty Dozen? Yeah. National Kosh has been putting out this report for many years. It gains so much media attention, both nationally and internationally. So we are really excited because we've received dozens and dozens of nominations. And, I mean, the reason I'm excited is because we're helping workers put their employers on blast. It's terrible that um, these things are happening, but the fact that we can help workers tell their stories, which we'll be doing extensively more so than, than in previous years uh, through the use of the report and just warning employers that they can't get away with this type of behavior. I think this year we'll also be focusing um, on lesser known offenders. You know, so often you see Amazon in the news every week uh, and they've made our dirty dozen list, I think, for three years consecutive, consecutively in a row. Um, but we'll also be focusing on workers and in industries and companies that maybe are lesser known, but that are organizing to create change in their workplace. And that'll be coming out right before Workers Memorial Day, which is at the end of April. And that's the day that OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, actually started. Dirty Dozen, look forward to that. Melissa, great job. Thank you so much. Again, the website to go to is nationalkosh, national C-O-S-H. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you in a couple of months, okay? Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. That'll be it for another edition of America's Workforce tomorrow. Desiree Hoffman of the United Auto Workers and the Washington Women in the Trades. Until then, all of you have a safe and wonderful day. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce radio podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.